0: Does knowledge come from medical school or does knowledge come from, in this case, the lived experience of having a disease? Because this disease isn't taught MACFS or long COVID, especially long COVID, no doctor will have graduated having learned about the long term effects of SARS CoV 2.
1: Welcome back to Evolving, I'm your host, Nita Jane, and today I'm here with Ryan Pryor, talking about an issue that affects millions of patients worldwide. While the pandemic was raging, another more insidious threat was also afoot, spawning a tidal wave of disability. Long COVID, a complex, multi-system chronic illness that is characterized by debilitating fatigue, brain fog, and a host of other unpleasant symptoms. Ryan Pryor is a journalist and author of The Long Haul, coming out this November. His bylines have appeared in CNN, USA Today, and The Daily Beast. In 2016, he released a feature documentary called The Forgotten Plague about myalgic encephalitis and chronic fatigue syndrome. Today, he's here with us to talk about long COVID. Ryan, thanks for being here.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
1: So the topic that we're discussing today hits especially close to home because I do count myself among the long haulers. When the pandemic first started, media outlets and health professionals had this messaging that presented COVID outcomes as being sort of binary. Either you're young and healthy and you make a full recovery or you're infirm, elderly, and immune compromised, in which case you might have risk for complications. When did you discover that this messaging was perhaps a false dichotomy? At what point did you realize that there was more to the story?
0: Yeah, I had been part of the me community for. A number of years prior to the pandemic, I was part of my own personal experience as a patient and then later as an advocate and a documentary filmmaker and a journalist. We understood right around probably February of 2020, I think is when it started to get on my radar that not only was this new virus that we were documenting in China likely to come to our shores. That was the first step. Understanding this probably was going to go global. And then second, if it did go global and it did affect a large number of people in the acute phase. What we know from MECFS and from a number of immune associated chronic illnesses is that there's a viral trigger. And it doesn't really matter what the viral trigger is, but that will then put the body into a state of dysautonomia and cause these long-term neurological and immunological abnormalities that can be disabling for a large number of people. So that, that really became a big fear for me, especially as I was talking to other advocates and other researchers and other patients who we were all batting down the hatches and going into lockdown or going into some kind of quarantine or social distance phase. And those of us who chronic Post-viral sufferers understood that there was going to be a twofold, threefold, maybe tenfold increase in, in post-viral illness as a result of this pandemic. So it got to be in the spring of 2020. I was very worried for the global situation and the acute phase and the number of deaths, but understood that in the 5, 10, 20-year landscape, COVID was going to have a much different effect on society.
1: There are so many parts of your journey that I identify with, especially Just talking about your experience with chronic fatigue syndrome, I think we both presented with symptoms in high school. We both got prescribed antidepressants at one point. I think we both even found a newfound sense of spirituality and astronomy as just a way to cope with uncertainty. One of your patients that you interviewed for the book said, my mom thinks I'm lonely for people, but I'm lonely for life itself. And I think that is something that a lot of patients can identify with. That feeling that you can't do the things that you used to do anymore. maybe you have a loss of autonomy. Maybe you're not able to care for yourself anymore. How important do you think it is for patients to come forward and share their stories in public spaces?
0: Yeah, I think it can be tremendously validating for any patient who either tells their story to others or other people who tell them. So the giving and receiving of stories, I think, is a big part of the healing process and that's not to say that like the moment of catharsis of like having some kind of emotional revelation is going to like make you better like you're not going to physically heal or at least not totally physically But i mean there might be Spillover effects where there's some cessation of symptoms just because you're able to unburden yourself of some of the stress. But it's important to make sure you're framing their life, that it's illness and disability and some level of physical frailty as part of the, hum- the human experience. When you have one particular illness, and me is my avenue into this, but that doesn't preclude the other hundreds or thousands of other uh, diseases that one can and will get in life. When you tell your story about your particular ailment, it's so much easier to unite in this other kind of larger field of what it means to reckon with human suffering. And so when I talk about my story, it's very easy for me to interact with people who have lymphoma or multiple sclerosis or who have had legs amputated or have diabetes. A lot of us are dealing with the same level of life change. It's some previous version of self that, stops existing and then a new version of self starts to exist. And that's something I try to get at in the, in the first chapter of this book, that I think disease and illness exist in the space between what dreams we have for ourselves and then what our current ability is. And if we can close that gap between current ability and future dreams, that's when illness can be manage and cease to have hold over us.
1: I love that way of phrasing it. That reminds me of something that I had read about patients feeling as though they have one foot in the land of the living and one foot in the land of the dead kind of existing in this gray area. And I do think that feeling can be rather unsettling, but one overall theme of your book that I really love is how patients are changing the game. On September 19th, you attended a Millions Missing protest at the White House to raise awareness for people living with myalgic encephalitis, long COVID, and other infection-associated complex chronic illnesses. And you begin chapter four of your book with the following. Our word patient comes to us from the Latin patiens, meaning one who suffers. It calls to mind a passive recipient of care, one who is examined and subjected to, made to obey orders. Talk to us a little bit about the Patient-Led Research Collaborative and how it redefined what it means to be a patient.
0: A group that's featured in the book is this Patient-Led Research Collaborative, which I think is doing some very specific, important work at the tip of the sphere of how long COVID is being defined and researched and discussed, and actually how the disease is named in the first place. That The word long COVID comes from an Italian archaeologist named Elisa Perigo, which is part of the story but this patient-led research collaborative is acting in a much larger tradition of which they're both conscious and not conscious and i think the ways in which they don't know the history are as interesting and important as the ways they do know this history and they spring from this other support group called the body politic that became very popular throughout 2020. What's happening here is that patients have the ability to, in the words of Dr. Frigo, to seize epistemic authority, which in, epi, you know, thinking about what epistemic means, it's like, how do we know what we know? What is knowledge? Does knowledge come from medical school or does knowledge come from, in this case, the lived experience of having a disease? And because this disease isn't taught, MACFS or long COVID, especially long COVID, are not taught in medical schools no doctor will have graduated having learned about SARS-CoV-2 or the long-term effects of SARS-CoV-2 so that's where lived experience is the most useful and important mode of knowledge and that's not just true here in the tip of the sphere the global pandemic event that's happened in previous fields in previous epidemics the most notable being the HIV AIDS and. 1980s and 1990s that there's called ACT UP, and then the Treatment Action Group that came from ACT UP. And so some of the work that we've been doing. I'm on the board of the Action Network, and which runs these millions missing events frequently in in Washington D.C. and in other cities around the world. And then this patient-led research collaborative, there is a mode of activism, so outside strategy. In this case, we were outside the White House. And there's an inside strategy of like essentially being inside the lab or inside research where stuff is being drugs repurposed or fast-tracked or new treatments discovered. So getting patients a seat at that table is a really key part of a number of innovations in PTSD or breast cancer or HIV. And I think that's going to be a real part of the future of long COVID and really needs to be framed as part of the future of medicine. That is, everyone included strategy, bringing patients to the table, taking wisdom from lived experience, and designing a better healthcare system, all stakeholders included.
1: I love that. Going back to your point about designing a better healthcare system. Reading your book brought up a lot of feelings. The feeling of being isolated, being ostracized, even at times being gaslit by the medical community. In your book, you discuss medical gaslighting as a phenomenon where patient symptoms are dismissed as imaginary. How can we prevent this from happening to more patients? Does medical school education need to change? Do we need to involve more information about the long-term effects of SARS-CoV-2? Do we need to start teaching more about CFS and myalgic encephalitis? Do we need to change the way insurance billing works? How can we create a more inclusive society that acknowledges and validates patient symptoms?
0: Yeah. So, so when patients feel gaslit, what that means is that the or when any person is feeling gaslit, it means that they're damn in a lived experience and then some other authority or person in their life tells them that's not true. So it's kind of being like systematically lied to and being dismissed being uh, in their own experience and being told that what their five senses are telling them is not correct so when people are sick and then that can sometimes not appear on diagnostic tests and so that can be an issue for doctors have a certain set of products and services that they're able to do certain bandwidth that they can operate in which is obviously like being able to diagnose and treat being being Two major ones, and the big uh, another area of being able to file paperwork with insurance companies. They're limited in their ability to use those tools, and that's where the roots of gaslighting occur because there's not yet been a single um, biomarker or specific diagnostic test that like is used to describe uh, any CFS or long COVID. So it has to be diagnosed on symptoms. We can go into greater detail, but there's no shortage of, of tests that do come back abnormal. I think that's really important to say that, that people will have elevated titers for Epstein-Barr virus or herpes virus reactivations, they can have abnormal cortisol levels, they can have low natural killer cell function, they can have T-cell exhaustions, can we have mutations on the MTHFR gene, and we can go down the list of a lot of things that if doctors were educated and if they didn't have the right kind of test, that they would more quickly move to an accurate diagnosis and be able to correct 10 or 15 abnormalities systematically over the course of 6 to 12 to 18 to 24 months. And so that's one step is getting diagnosis right and being able to reckon with complexity. Uh, second thing is if your a doctor, like your job is to prescribe medicine. And when they have not been told how to prescribe and what's prescribed for this particular diagnosis, which they don't they don't diagnosis. So they feel powerless. So I'm just take to take the doctor side a little bit on, on this gaslighting question is that they're powerless from a diagnostic standpoint. They have not been told the patient has abnormality in the blood. Treat with 15 milligrams of X over the course of three weeks and the symptoms should come down and that's a mindset they're used to operating in. And then if they can't use the levers that they're used to using, that's a problem, so it would be easier just to deny that the problem exists in the first place than to have the more complex, time-consuming conversations with patients about how to manage the illness and certain drugs that may or may not work. I advocate for a broad range of supplements and a broad range of both approved FDA approved interventions to help with symptoms and with supplements that can make inroads too. So I I think it's false that there aren't drugs that can work because there's plenty of drugs that do make a difference. And then on on the insurance front, they would be able to prescribe these tests or do these diagnostics or prescribe certain drugs, but they have their hands tied because insurance companies haven't approved that drug for that use. And they, in order to provide any kind of service, it will, in order to even have their time paid for a 20-minute appointment, yeah. they'll a bill a certain billing code. There are billing codes now for UCFs and for long COVID. E- even educating physicians about the existence of the billing code is a, is a huge portion of advocacy and a few basics there. Yeah,
1: Thank you for that. So part of the problem is that... Long COVID and myalgic encephalitis don't neatly fit into that diagnosed and drug paradigm, which is kind of leaving a lot of patients on the edge in terms of getting treatment, getting some relief from their symptoms. That kind of also reminded me of this one part of the book where you allude to William Osler and the way he practiced medicine was to say that if you just listen to the patient, they'll give you all the information that you need. They'll tell you what you need to know. And I guess that's, again, going back to you're highlighting of how lived experience can sometimes be more important than what the medical education tells you, especially when there are so many unknowns left. And perhaps the finding of a biomarker or something more specific to point to could help with getting a lot of testing approved in in terms of medical insurance billing. You do talk about how myalgic encephalitis and long COVID, they can both obviously begin in the aftermath of a viral infection. ME, it can often start after Epstein-Barr, and similar syndromes have been observed after SARS and MERS pandemics as well. And long COVID and ME in particular seem to share a lot of overlapping features in terms of reduced blood flow to the brain, GI dysbiosis, mutated mitochondrial DNA, impaired immune cell activity that you had alluded to earlier. In your book, you discuss the overlap of long COVID with conditions like POTS, which is a form of dysautonomia, and mast cell activation syndrome, how close do you think we are to a theory of everything that encompasses these related conditions? And how can we accelerate the pace of research in this area?
0: There's a chapter later in the book that refers to this as a, a theory of everything. What I hope to point to in the book, I and mean, what I think we're knocking on the door of, is a new hypotheses about this large swath of human biology that's covered in the piecemeal fashion and These diseases, mast cell activation syndrome, POTS, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic Lyme, fibromyalgia, long COVID, the the conditions of dysautonomia, gut dysbiosis, and many more are part of this complex chronic community. And so there needs to be an overall systematic approach to treating all of them because I think that they're all Versions of each other that they're all, in the words of Dr. Amy Kroll, who's put who's in the book, it's an immune associated chronic disease. And one thing that I'll be advocating for over the next few months is the creation of a new institute through the National Institutes of Health for complex chronic diseases. That this, this for Amy, it doesn't really fit into the National Institute structure, but there's, there's an institute. For I mean, this is where. Most several taxpayer dollars go, are housed in the NIH if they're going to be used for biomedical research. And the NIH will divide that for an institute for neurological disease, an institute for infectious disease, and on down the list. And because this type of complex chronic disease doesn't fit into one of those National Institute structures, and it doesn't really fit into the governing academic body, American Academy of Neurology or the American Academy of Cardiology, that there isn't really a home for it. And that's where a lot of the problem of, of falling through the cracks occurs. So creating a set of bodies through government agencies or through academic structures by which complex chronic diseases can all be housed. From a research perspective and from a clinical perspective, I think it's got to be a, a major goal for the next generation of growth in this field and for advocacy. And I think there's been some, some interesting op-eds most recently by Zena. Tufeky in the New York Times, who calls for this new National Institute. And she calls, she says National Institute for Post-Viral Diseases, and there, that's where post firewall versus complex chronic, some distinctions there about exactly how to structure it and exactly what to name it. But I think it's all pointed at the same thing, that these are the set of diseases that all are interrelated and all poorly addressed. And we need new political and scientific and academic structures and new ways of thinking. And it, all of that recalls, as you mentioned. This idea from Sir William Osler, the father of medical education, essentially, in the 19th century, it's a very basic thing. So a patient has something wrong with them, ask them what's wrong with them, and they'll tell you. That's how we can, that's the basic idea here too, is that he, human wisdom or life experience leads us into this place.
1: I like that you talk about the potential pitfalls of specialization, because I do think complexity is something that's inherent to all disease, not just those that are implicated as having an infection associated with them. I'm sort of thinking about John Donne when he said, no man is an island, but neither is any organ, tissue, or cell. I think that all parts of the body are in constant communication with one another, and there's, of course, a lot of crosstalk between systems as well. But how often do you have a neurologist consulting with a GI doctor about their patient's migraines or their patient's memory problems? That doesn't happen very often. So I sort of feel that these pockets of specialties sometimes do more harm than good because we're not paying attention to the crosstalk that's happening between systems. And I think to negate that or to not consider it as important is kind of leading to a lot of blind spots. You briefly touched on the infectious origins of Alzheimer's and how that ties into the increased risk of dementia that you see after COVID infection. How might solving long COVID also shine light on other conditions because all diseases have a certain degree of complexity and looking at a more holistic view of the etiology could be helpful not just for things like long COVID and ME, but also things like maybe diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, conditions that are very common but place a very high burden on the healthcare system in America.
0: Yeah, there's, there's a key part of this is just this over, our overarching idea of infection theory. Does mystifying, I use the word mystifying in scare quotes because they're probably not that mystifying or they're not that mysterious if they were just to be approached in the correct mode empirically. So I think Alzheimer's is a good example of a disease that despite huge amounts of funding and huge amounts of research, there has not been huge amounts of progress. And that could be because of not being able to fully understand the roots of it. If Alzheimer's or the various forms of dementia have various immune triggers. And that's what we're alluding to in the book, that certain viruses that infect someone early on can be associated with certain types of Alzheimer's being one type of dementia, but multiple types of dementia or multiple types of brain disease could have their roots at a large number of people happen to have had X infection earlier in life. And there could be a a decades long link there about how that led to development of a longer term illness. So I think that's pretty key. The reason which long COVID helps illustrate a new paradigm for these diseases and where long COVID is the largest natural experiment in history is that we'll be able to follow people who had a SARS-CoV-2 infection, as, which will essentially be the most common virus on the planet that all humans will have had the experience of, or well, billions will have had the experiment, experience of, therefore become an experiment and we will chart exactly the ways in which the SARS-CoV-2 infection will then correlate to upticks in other diseases. That's the most broad strokes way of thinking about that problem. And then getting more into the molecular level, I think it's where real progress will get made on some of these questions and if there's upticks in multiple sclerosis or upticks in Alzheimer's, which I think there probably will be correlated to SARS-CoV-2, that'll tell us a lot about these neuro neurodegenerative diseases and the potential viral triggers that could be associated with them. And so that's where there's quite a bit of optimism. I think actually in a number of these complex neurological disease fields that this might be a refresher and a new paradigm for thinking about
1: Given the various ideologies for things like Alzheimer's, the fact that there are so many different viral and bacterial triggers associated with that particular disease, do you think the current epidemic in which we find ourselves with long haulers, do you think that's highlighted the need for precision medicine, the need for treatment to be more individualized, rather than this one-size-fits-all paradigm that we currently operate under?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of us to be excited about there. President Obama created this precision medicine initiative in his second term, and a large amount of that money was being tied up in the Scripps Research Institute in California, which is doing some incredible work on precision medicine and doing incredible work on COVID. So I'm excited to follow what they're doing in precision medicine as it relates to post-COVID conditions is going to be a fascinating field. And what this, what's happening in precision medicine is that you have these omics: so genomics, is every gene in the body; proteomics, every protein in the body; viromics, every virus in the body, and on down to microbiomics and et cetera. This method of understanding the totality of human biology is something that's only become possible because of major advancements in ability to collect data and major advancements in ability to process that data in forms of supercomputing. Because we can both collect that complex data and then analyze it, then the next thing is to apply it to clinical practice and figuring out what particular molecules or set of molecules is out of step in certain conditions. And that will be essentially a tenfold innovation compared to the current slash previous mode of doing medicine. And that will show that the idea here is that each specific signature of disease will be a little bit different in every person. And that's part of it is like, so we'll benefit as patients for, you know, with a more personalized approach. But the precision approach writ large for the whole of biology and for the whole of like understanding human diseases, there's entire swaths of the illness that I think will be much more easier to unravel through this process.
1: Just to play devil's advocate here, I think some critics of precision medicine claim that these approaches aren't likely to be adapted just because you're going to have to cater treatment specifically to each individual person, but potentially you're also reducing the cost of disease in terms of overall burden. So. How do you make the economic argument to justify a precision medicine approach, which might be more costly in the short term, but potentially save billions in the long term?
0: Yeah. I think there's an interest there. That's the, when you're talking about OLIC, there's another OLIC that doesn't get talked about, which is economics. So getting the cost structures right and getting the business models right and getting this commercialized, validated, commercialized, and scaled. And doing this in, in all clinics around the country and around, around the world, there's a separate, you know, we'll say, business project. There, no amount of scientific innovation in the lab matters if it can't be put into action for regular patients. And I'll just highlight here that the cost of doing of sequencing a genome, the first genome you know, ever sequenced of human, it rang in the millions of dollars. Human Genome Project ran into billions of dollars. Probably about 10 years ago when I graduated from college and was working starting to do work in this field, you saw genomes falling from $1,000 more toward $500. So that's where it starts getting more approachable for an average consumer or an average patient. Now those are less than $100 to get your genome sequenced. You just separate from getting, it, getting that data analyzed and having a doctor who understands how to do the analysis are slightly separate questions. but. Any patient can have their genome sequence for a cost that's within a, like a, we'll say, a middle class income. The cost is being driven down for a larger and larger number of people. A new, a new generation of doctors has to be trained at figuring out how to implement the, this knowledge for specific people so that this will be a long-term shift and it's not going to happen in the next five years. But you'll see pockets of it here and here. And that's when iteration and innovation will take place and more and more of the approach will get will be adopted.
1: I love the idea of genomics making it to clinical prime time because in your book you do talk about how Alzheimer's risk, it's better predicted by two factors that are existing together than either alone, that being the presence of an APOE4 gene mutation, as well as having infection that crosses the blood-brain barrier. These two in conjunction seem to be much better at predicting the risk for Alzheimer's than either of these factors in isolation. What are some other examples where Having that genetic information could really inform healthcare decisions.
0: One easy one off the top of my head is this MTHFR gene pre- present in a number of chronic illnesses. And people with ME/CFS and then post-treatment Lyme or chronic Lyme or long COVID also could have this particular gene implicated which has a, a piece of methylation cycle. So the ways in which the cells create energy A solution here is that if this is the underlying or one of multiple underlying causes for the fatigue and the inability to respond to exertion and create more energy, as a result, that supplementing with B12 or methylated B12 vitamin is a is one way to to get around it. And I think that's a very area of low hanging fruit that's a over the counter supplement that can be accessed in any corner drugstore that has pretty significant benefit for A good number of chronic illness patients, not to say it solves your problem or cures you, but I think when you're looking for ways to improve your health, like 10%, 15%, 20%, you want to have some small wins along the way. And that's um, MTHFR is is a key gene there. There's also another thing that I report about in the last couple of years for CNN too, that the, you'll leave these, it's got GWAS genome wide association study and that's casting a really wide net for trying to, trying to find an association between patients with a particular disease and then a particular set of genetic markers. That That's not a hyper-specific button-down approach, but I think that's a real key part of this overall dragnet of trying to... Um, get the basic associations down and then you can run more precise studies once you identify candidates for particular genes. And that that's where essentially any disease and any gene can be subject to this lens, this approach. And there's a lot of ways that this cannot be predicted that or we'll probably see a lot of surprises in a good way.
1: Speaking of genome-wide association studies, the vast majority of data that has been collected for that type of work tends to be from weird populations, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. How can we make a more inclusive landscape that includes populations that are underserved or underrepresented in medical literature?
0: Well, I, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about this, and just as a general principle, somewhat this idea of the Vitruvian man, at you know, least Leonardo da Vinci paints this, Jaws's a sketch of this like prototypical man. It's a white man, which is like so much of the basic science is like in the, our basic understanding of anatomy comes from this Renaissance tradition, which is a largely um, white European tradition. And there's no yeah, there's no shortage of genes that are present in other populations that make research on Europeans and especially European males not applicable. And the, with the fact checker for our book was uh, Maya Dusenberry, who wrote a book called Doing Harm, which was pretty educational for me to understand the ways in which large amounts of science simply don't take into account the female perspective, which is a huge problem because that's 50% of humans, and which is some research, therefore is not valid for 50% of humans and a large number of people with chronic illnesses are female. And so a lot of the research that's been done about what's the typical person, it's really what's typical male, and it's, yeah, they're in, Yeah, I recommend Maya's book about this too. If people want to get more in depth here, when you're in, when I was with CNN, when you're analyzing any particular study, the first thing that we would want to look for is like, do they have a good number of, a good ratio of male to female participants and a good ratio of white to black or whichever race? Studies are considered not valid now, at least through our lens, that if they don't have a good demographic mix and so that, or we would at least strongly point out that these are valid results for this population, but we have to, more research would be required to extrapolate. And I'll just mention this in the context of genomic medicine, precision medicine and research institute, which I alluded to earlier, and they're running this study, now millions of people do this, what they call the all of us program, which is getting accurate sampling of the population. And there's also, I've been Happy this as a science reporter covering COVID during the current administration. I think my administration's done a good job of bringing health equity as a lens throughout all policy making. And I think when you see the word equity and when equity is taken seriously, then you're going to have more quality outcomes for all populations or more populations because the effect of that particular healthcare intervention or that particular research will have been designed to work for all assets, all parts of society. In the 1990s, even during the Clinton administration, parts of the Clinton administration were where some of the rules first began to take place about how how and why women need to be included in research. And I think part of the legacy of the Black Lives Matter protests is, not to say that wasn't gonna happen anyway during the current administration, but I just think that the concepts of equity and applying this to all parts of society are improving, but they yes. uh, are the problem.
1: Do you think that grassroots organizations or grassroots crowdfunded research efforts could potentially lead to greater health equity in the way that some applications allow anybody to to collect health information using health tech devices and feed that information into an app that researchers can then access in other parts of the world? Yeah. Do you see technology as potentially bridging the gap where representation isn't quite where it needs to be in medical research by allowing anyone to become a citizen scientist?
0: Yeah, I think that there's a lot of room to run in this area. And a lot I can talk about in terms of this, the overall idea of trying to democratize science, trying to activate the average person. Any person can report information and then be, therefore be a research subject. Which is also to say that body, in anybody or any body, any human body is inherently collecting data by, by virtue of it, its existence and then figuring out ways to actually harness that data collection are for sure a key part of research. And one of the problems of how medical research has been conducted prior to 2010 or prior to 2012 is that people were out living their lives, doing whatever they're doing. And you would only be able to detect, do blood tests or brain scans or like everything else when the person's actually in the clinic. And and I wear this Garmin wearable device here, which is always collecting data from my wrist about a number of different indicators. And I use it for my own purposes, but it's also the kind of thing where that introducing that data about sleep and about heart rate and about temperature, depending on what device you're using, is easy. I mean, it, it or it's easy data, and if you have a huge sea of it, I think you would want to have a generation of doctors who's able to harness that data in a clinical setting. And that might not be relevant for your a lot of the brother than mill diseases that are easily treated, but for stuff that's a little bit more fleeting, a lot more data can be collected to to help solve for those questions. And then. Another area is the so wearables is one, one big thing. And then the level of new work by peer support groups, this peer health innovation pipeline is a real this in my book and it's illustrating a number of different, really hundreds of different disease communities. And that was a lot of my work over the past five or six years at Stanford Medicine X, the patient scholar was learning from people with di- diabetes or brain cancer and how they were leveraging patient communities to solve some of their most pressing issues. Building a community, one of the people in my book argues that that ought to be part of the discharge instructions for any new patient being diagnosed with any new disease is here's a prescription and then here's a second prescription, which is for a support group. And when you join a group of other people who have lived, you're probably going to learn about 10 times more than the individual doctor would tell you and especially like a lot of practical information that, that wouldn't be available in medical school, but is available in our community online.
1: That kind of reminds me of a couple other communities that have recently come online. One is called Alike Health and another is Stuff That Works. It's basically trying to leverage the collective unconscious of a community of people who all have a similar diagnosis, just in terms of sharing the knowledge, sharing what works or didn't work, just sharing personal accounts not in a diagnostic sense, but just to add to the literature, add to the possibilities that exist in terms of routes of investigation that maybe you haven't looked into yet, treatment options that you might wanna bring up to your doctor. And I do think there is power in numbers in really leveraging all the information that patients know collectively. I think that's really powerful. Could self-tracked data help inform diagnoses in a doctor's office? Like if you were to say that I've been tracking my heart rate and my blood pressure over the course of the past couple months, and these are the trends I've observed, could you imagine a scenario where you bring that information into your doctor's office and then actually take that and have it inform your diagnosis?
0: Yeah. And also I'll tell a quick story here within the nice thing is I don't have to imagine it. I can just tell you how it happened. And this is from the point of view of Mike Snyder, who's a pioneer of wearables at Stanford chair of the genetics department at Stanford. And so he's been tracking all of his data for the last 10 years or so using a variety of wearable devices. And one of the things that he's found is that when he had a virus, a cold flu, his heart rate would change. And so he could predict if his heart rate variability differed within you know, a couple of days, that's going to predict him getting the stipples or him getting the onset of an illness. And that's really interesting baseline data just for like the common cold, which may or may not be relevant. You know, it's something, but it's not like life threatening. And then where he applies this even more specifically, which I found very compelling and I mentioned this in the book, is that when he got Lyme disease, he's from California, he went to Massachusetts to visit his brother and he was in the woods and he knew there was ticks there. So he came back and he had this heart rate variability problem. And then he went to the primary care doctor and thought it was a cold. And the doctor said, this can't be Lyme disease because he didn't fit the CDC test and the CDC test is its own can of worms. That's not very good. And said, no, my heart rate changed. I was in Massachusetts. I know I probably got the by a tick. I think I have Lyme. And then they, they did the more advanced test, and sure enough, he did have Lyme and he was accurate. And he was able to use wearables to preempt what was a general diagnosis that most doctors would say is, oh, you don't have this. And he could prove that he did, or he could at least inform the overall suggestion toward getting that diagnostic test. And I think it's a powerful story because Lyme, especially untreated Lyme, can become a severe debilitating chronic illness. So if he was able to get antibiotics quickly because of him being able to solve this problem using wearables, it's easy to see, oh world where you scale this up. And so he scaled this up in COVID. And what they're trying to do now is to figure out if someone's heart rate changed in a given couple days, and then they test positive for SARS-CoV-2, the PCR, then is heart rate variability two days prior to a PCR test predictive of the person getting COVID? And they have data to to believe that this is the case. And so I think that's a super exciting application of the overall premise.
1: So often we talk about how long it takes for treatments to go from the bench to the bedside and how we can shorten that time interval. But just to hear about how patients are kind of taking matters into their own hands, collecting their own data and bringing that into the clinic, I think is really encouraging. Just as a way to democratize healthcare, I think there's also groups that might still be left out because what if someone doesn't have access to health tech devices? How can we democratize health tech so that it's more easily accessible to patients that might not have access?
0: It's a showstopper. You can have all kinds of fancy technology and fancy techniques, but if it's not scalable and universal, it's therefore useless probably, or at least useless for a given population. I think the rise of iPhones has been helpful in this regardless of whether someone has internet access at home or has a laptop, even the lower income populations will have a smartphone. And the rise of smart devices in conjunction with smartwatches in particular, I remember it being a big deal even perhaps six years ago when some of the first personalized health reporting out mechanisms became available on iPhones. I was very excited about that. And now that's ubiquitous and it's expected that there's an app that comes out of the box on the iPhone that does this, that counts your steps and keeps track of your sleep. Uh, it's not super accurate, but it's better if you have a ring on your finger or a watch, a wearable on your wrist, you'll get better data and that'll be uh, tracked. The device I use is $100. And so that's a luxury kind of for me. It's compared to a $400 or $500, smartwatches, bells and whistles. It's more affordable and it's giving me the specific data I want without giving me all the phone calls and notifications themselves. This device I have at my wrist could easily be half this price in five years. And so I think you'll continue to see uh, innovations to make things better and also just the economies of scale, which will help improve access. It's not going to solve a problem, but it's gonna at least going to get more people to be able to afford it.
1: I want to take a minute to talk about economic prospects for long haulers. The United States is just one of a handful of countries that doesn't have any paid annual leave. And I've personally observed a lot of Spoonies turn towards entrepreneurship as a way to kind of cope with the fact that standard 9-to-5 jobs, they don't really accommodate their specific health needs. A month ago, you published an opinion piece in The Guardian, along with Fiona Lowenstein, founder of The Body Politic, about how long COVID could be responsible for up to one-third of the current labor shortage in the U.S. You conclude, fixing the labor shortage means treating, accommodating, and mitigating long COVID. It requires building a society in which disabled people can participate. What does an inclusive society look like, and how do we ensure that disabled and chronically sick people are able to participate in our economy?
0: This will be part of my work going forward. I left CNN in order to have time for writing a book, and I'll be doing some some journalistic work with the Century Foundation going forward, which is focused on the future of disability policy. And I think this is a huge area to move into. My work with Bass was relevant to about a million people in the US. My work with long COVID is probably relevant to roughly 10 million or so here, and probably hundred million around the world. One in four people has a disability. So chronic illness, long COVID stuff, all reports up into this larger to say disability access question. And there's real strength in numbers here with just a sheer number of people who are, who are interested in disability policy right large. So I'm excited to be part of this work. And the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in 1990. And it's just as important as the civil rights legislation in the 1960s and giving women the right to vote in the twenties and um gay marriage passing in 2015 that that we've had a whole generation for the last 30 years or so grow up in a world in which disability rights was considered more mainstream and there needs to be a second the second ada generation is a key area for improving disability access to a range of services and accommodations and just basic human rights when people think about disability, whether they're thinking about is ramps and curbs to get up on the sidewalks or wheelchair ramps to get into buildings, which is just important. But the, I mean, there's a hundred other areas where disability protections can either save a life by giving them access to social security, giving them access to Medicaid, giving, and I shouldn't say they, I should say us, cause I'm part of this community giving us access to accommodations through their employers and which employers are required to bend a little bit in order to allow people to work. And I got to college at the University of Georgia, partly because of the disability resource center there. Part of what my ability to work full-time for senior for six and a half years was because I had a disability accommodation in place. So, so I'll be the first to raise my hand and say, i benefit from this. And more people ought to be educated, aware, and have access to the same level of service and feel okay about asking for it because it is your God-given legal right. As a matter of being human, that you deserve this, and it's enshrined in legislation in the US. I think we need to strengthen the ADA front approach, but the largest number of newly disabled people in generation are COVID long haulers. So long COVID, your complex chronic illness, is the biggest category of where disability policy needs to be updated. The most basic thing I'll say is that people with complex or intermittent disabilities with brain fog and fatigue benefit from being able to work remotely. If they have a hard time commuting and waste all their energy getting to the office, if that's the case, don't make them go to the office. Also, they're probably immune compromised. Don't make them go to the office. They can work eight hours of maybe laying down, maybe not being exposed to a pandemic you're gonna increase disabled workforce participation in conjunction with cases where remote work is available. And there was an increase in disabled workforce participation in 2020 because that was the greatest amount of remote work options also being available.
1: Absolutely, and not only remote work, but having flexible hours, just because I think with a lot of chronic illness, you sometimes need some time to recharge in the middle of the day because of fatigue or, flare-ups or brain fog interfering. So I I think being able to set your own hours is also really important for people who are dealing with complex immune-related issues.
0: One last note here is that I wrote a commentary piece for the Century Foundation about this, that rest is the most helpful prescription for people with post-viral conditions. So we need labor policies to reflect the need to rest. It's really that simple. Seems like it's very complicated for employers to figure the question out. A lot of our advocacy through the Action Network and through Century Foundation is just helping explain that to the Department of Labor. And then the Department of Labor, at a federal level, we hope will be further empowered to issue guidelines for employers and for schools and universities to how to cater to people with these conditions and yeah, allowing the time for adequate rest. And that can manifest in 20 different personnel policies. But rest is the principle.
1: I think that's a great note to end on. And I think regardless of who you are, rest is something that should be prioritized. Ryan, thanks for being here. The long haul comes out November 15th. And thank you again for your time and all of your insights into patient advocacy, long COVID and what we can look forward to.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You
1: can find the show notes for this and all other episodes at the Substack URL linked in the show description. You can also review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or Podchaser. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time.